Hey guys, this is Gary, and welcome to another episode of Pod Wars. On Pod Wars, we like to dissect Star Wars, Marvel, and our favorite little nuggets of geeky media. We have with us our usual friend, Justice. What's up, guys? And back from the dead is everyone's favorite podcaster, our boy Evan. Wait, let me get the music going and the flames going. I'm back, guys. <laughs> Cue John Cena entrance music. Yes, yes. It's awesome to be back. We're having it's a good about time. It's about time. Right? <laughs> yes, yes. I'm so happy to be back. It's just been fun to see you guys and talk. And we're really excited for the upcoming interview here. So we're talking with Dr. David Kyle Johnson. I uh, give a little idea of who he is in the beginning, but basically he is a philosophy professor at King's College, and we talk all things Star Wars and philosophy. We got listen in for some hot takes that are going to change your view of Rose, change your view of The Last Jedi, of the sequels, and a pretty damn good argument that the whole Skywalker saga is actually cohesive. Yeah. There, so there's some emotions there. There's a part that's pretty mind blowing. So oh yeah. Prepare to have your minds blown by someone far smarter than all of us. <laughs> even though I'm very happy we have another doctor on the show, guys. Yeah, I <laughs> I, I was tempted to bring up, yo, we're fifty percent doctor at fifty percent not right now, but <laughs> I really didn't want to flex on him, so <laughs> And I will gladly flex that yeah, till the I, day I die. I flex for you, Gary. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All right, guys. We're so, so excited for the interview coming ahead. <laughs> hey, guys. We're really excited here to join with Dr. David Kyle Johnson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at King, King's College. Dr. Johnson, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, and I'm actually a full professor now. That uh, wherever you found that bio, I've tried to find them all out on the internet to update uh, them. You have to chase um, them down. <laughs> yeah, I know it's hard. It's hard. They're everywhere, and it's hard. So, but I actually am a full professor now. Not that it's a big deal, but yeah, that's great. No, it's hey, awesome. awesome. Well, Kyle's done a lot of different contributions within the realm of both philosophy and geeky media. And we, I was introduced to your work through more of the great courses and the work you did with that. The series you had on basically all kinds of versions of science fiction and how the philosophers kind of align with it. I really stuck with, obviously, your one with Star Wars, and that's kind of what we're going to touch on today. But Yes, lecture, lecture 14 in sci-fi and philosophy. <laughs> but before we dive into that, we, we always like to ask people coming onto the show, what is your favorite Star Wars movie? Yeah, so I think that right now, as we speak and for a while, uh, my favorite Star Wars movie has been Rogue One. Um, I think that it is the, the most kind of exciting and well-written story. Um, and I also think that I have just found that I like Star Wars better without the Jedi. Um, interesting. I take, I like that. I, I really agree. I like the solo movies because they're different and I, I think they're the best Star Wars. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I like, I like solo. I like rogue one. I love the Mandalorian. All of them are basically absent Jedi, right? Of course you've got, you know, Darth Vader and the Sith and in, in rogue one, but, um, and, and this may date back to like my preference for this kind of Star Wars may date, may date, date back to my high school days when I played the role-playing game, we played, uh, I had some buddies in high school, we played Star Wars role-playing. This was back when it was all six-sided die and that kind of stuff. Um, and I've got my source book sitting right over there. I've still got it. Um, and 
I started the first time I played, I played a failed Jedi because that was the only character that kind of came with a lightsaber when you first started uh, the adventure or whatever. And it was boring. It was, it wasn't as exciting. You, you, you didn't, you know, you, you had to be good all the time and it just, the, the stories weren't exciting. So I ended up switching to a Gamorrean guard um, mm -hmm. and I played and they were, they hated droids. They were dumb as bricks and they were strong as hell and they were it was the it was the best and we and so we always played and we really never ran into any jedi when we played um we did kill darth vader one time my gamorian <laughs> buried his viroax uh into his into his chest plate and we we killed him that was fun and it was Heck all yeah. fair like it was all real die and we really did it i thought my character was going to die and i succeeded in killing darth vader <laughs> but um, <laughs> um but uh but th those stories were just more exciting it was just it was just fun it was just more fun and so i might you know uh uh what's his face uh, one of the directors from the mandalorian who's worked at lucas film um let me look at my notes here uh dave filanoi uh, has said that star wars is all about family and specifically like the you know the skywalker family mm. and i think i might like it better when it's not um mm. i don't know but that's 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 my kind of short answer to that or maybe too long of an answer to that but no i i think that will definitely get into the philosophy we're going to be talking about later like the the darker things. I just think the solo uh, the solo films and mandalorian have darker undertones because there's really not a lot of hope yeah, I think that that's and that, I think that that can that can make for a little bit better sci-fi. Oh, that's something else too is that <laughs> that the Jedi being absent from it makes it a little bit more sci-fi and less fantasy, mm. right? Some people argue mm. that Star Wars isn't even sci-fi; it's just it's just fantasy, right? Um, and so without the Force and all that kind of stuff, it's it's a little bit uh, less of that. And by the way, so is the first movie. Um, so like, if you look at and this is why I think with the first movie is like of, of the regular Star Wars, I think the first one um, might be my favorite. I don't know. I, I go between that and Empire. But one of the interesting things about the first movie is that the force is very understated. It's not it's almost not a mythical force. Right. Mm -hmm. Everything that the force does in the first movie, you could kind of see being done in the real world. Right. Like Ben is just his confidence convinces the stormtroopers. These aren't the droids you're looking for. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, Luke hallucinates Ben's voice. Because he, you know, you know that kind of stuff, right? Uh, Darth Vader is is basically got all the people conned, and he thinks that you know he thinks that they they think he can choke them, and so when he does this stuff, you know, they you know they choke that kind of stuff. You don't get the like lifting stuff and you know lightning out of your fingers and all that kind of stuff and, until later, mm. right? And so the Force is much more kind of a real world. When I give talks on this, I often liken it to the Force in the real world is not too much unlike. Uh, what we would, what I don't really think is like a real metaphysical force, but like what you, what you see is chi and like martial arts, right? Um, Bruce Lee playing, if you've never seen this video, look it up. Bruce Lee playing ping pong with nunchucks. Oh, it's and, insane. That video. Right? And like, and like, and like kicking, kicking two world professional, you know, ping pong players ass, asses <laughs> with nunchucks, right? Like that looks like Jedi shit, man. Like, that's, 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 like, Right. And that's, that's totally something that could happen in the first movie. Right. Bruce Lee can't shoot lightning out of his hands, but like, you know, and that stuff is real world. Right. So anyway, um, that's why maybe why I like some of the earlier movies a little bit better because the force is less mythical. So it's more sci-fi ish and less, less fantasy. But wait, anyway. but if you like it as less mythical, then are you a fan of the metachlorians, the chemical nature <laughs> of the force? <laughs> <laughs> what, what I like is, um, 
you know how how Ben Kenobi lies. You know, Ben Kenobi says things like, you know, oh yeah, me and your father were best friends, and uh, Darth Vader killed him. No, he didn't. That's a lie, right? <laughs> uh, he he thinks truth is just a you know a point of view, and which we'll talk about a little bit later when we talk about Nietzsche or whatever, right? But I like interpreting the movies as the midi chlorians were like Obi-Wan and especially Qui-Gon's little joke that they played on, on, you know, young Jedi's or whatever. And it's just like, watch this. I'm going to tell them about the man, you know, the midi chlorians again or whatever. Right. And they would tell us this, this, this little story to the young Jedi or whatever as, as a joke. But of course they, they know it's not true. That's my head cannon. That's how I kind of get out of the midi um, <laughs> Oh boy. Oh my gosh. Well, we, we got to talk a little bit about your bread and butter with the sci-fi and philosophy here. So how what attracted you to analyzing science fiction through the lens of kind of the classic philosophers? Yeah, so when – hopefully this is the kind of answer you're looking for for this question. Um, when Great, Great Courses offered uh, me – the opportunity to do sci-fi and philosophy. They came and said, well, we could, you could do one. We, I'd already done a couple of courses for them. I'd done a metaphys exploring metaphysics for them and a kind of intro to philosophy course called the big questions of philosophy, which there's already a lot of sci-fi in that one anyway. So when great courses came and said, we can either do sci-fi or fantasy, a, a fantasy course. I said, we are doing sci-fi. My entire life has been leading up to this point. Um, everything I've done up to now, that this is what we're going to do. And so here, here's why I say that. For one, growing up, I was immersed in science fiction, both popular science fiction, unpopular science fiction, Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who, Blake Seven, uh, Quantum Leap, I just all of it. Um, uh, I absolutely loved it. And uh, then I went to college and uh, when I was uh, when I took intro, I fell in love with philosophy and decided that I wanted to teach it. And one of the reasons I decided to want, I wanted to teach it was I realized that I was... Uh, I don't mean to toot my own horn here or anything like that, but I realized I was good at explaining difficult philosophical concepts and difficult philosophical arguments. Um, when I took logic, all of my classmates came to my dorm room to get help on logic. Uh, whenever we were in metaphysics or epistemology in these more difficult classes, you know, was, my fellow classmates would come to my room and we would discuss these things. And I often would explain things using examples from popular culture. Um, I was really really into the Simpsons. I would use Simpsons as, a, as an example for just about everything. Um, this was back in the 90s and they already had an example for everything. Um, and so I would use pop culture and science fiction to explore philosophical topics and stuff. I, I continued to do that. So I decided to be to be a professor. I continued to do this throughout grad school. Uh, I remember one of my, the philosophy, the philosophy of language paper I wrote uh, in grad school was used all Simpsons examples. Like I had all these different conversational examples about meaning and that kind of stuff. And I used like all real and Oh, and, that's your you know, jam, Evan. Then. Yeah. Yeah. The Simpsons right. is great. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, you would, you would enjoy the paper. So, um, <laughs> uh, and so then whenever I got, um, my, my first published work, and this actually happened before I got my job at King's, but my first public paper uh, was was in South Park and philosophy. I did something on the problem of evil in Cartman land. Um, and then the job I ended up getting at King's College, it turns out, like I got that publication first, it turns out that one of the big people in the department was William Irwin, and he is the person who spearheaded the entire pop culture and philosophy book genre. Uh, it started with Open Court. He moved it to Blackwell Wiley a little bit after I got to King's. Uh, but there's like over 50 uh, 
books in the series now. The first one was in Seinfeld. They did Simpsons and Lord of the Rings and Matrix and more Matrix and uh, on and on and on and on and on. Um, and so I had this, you know, I had this colleague who was really into using pop culture to explain philosophy. Um, and that gave me the opportunity. I did the Heroes and Philosophy book. I did the Inception book we talked about a while ago. I just got through doing the Black Mirror book. Um, and so I, I've written numbers. Like that was edited. I edited those books. I've written tons and tons of chapters um, for uh, uh, for the different books. And so I was just like immersed in it. I was already doing this. It was, it was already kind of part of my world. And so, you know, when they came and, and add to that, like my speech and debate stuff, and I, you know, I've got, I got public speaking experience and all that kind of stuff. And so when they said, we're going to do this course on science fiction and philosophy, it's like everything that I've done up to this point is all coming together to like my knowledge of everything that I've ever <laughs> learned about or whatever is all coming together into this one course. And so I put a lot of work into it, uh, but I'm really proud uh, of the result as the result. And one of the things, so, and maybe this is the answer you're looking for. One of the reasons I think it's so important to do something like science sci-fi is philosophy uh, is because I think that, and even, even the open court and, and uh, uh, the Blackwell series does this, they basically treat pop culture as like a springboard, as a way to explain philosophy. So they use it as thought experiments. Um, thought experiments as a way to like demonstrate philosophical ideas. And that's great. That's wonderful. I do that too. But I also think that something's missing is that science fiction authors uh, are often doing philosophy. They are making philosophical arguments with their works themselves. Mm -hmm. And that was something that's kind of, kind of missing, I think. And so that's why... The course is titled, it's not titled uh, Science Fiction and Philosophy. It's sci-fi, it's science fiction as mm. philosophy, right? Uh, and so the idea is to try to treat each piece of science fiction that we look at uh, in the course as an argument for something in particular, that, there, that, there, that there's a, that's an argument that, that's being made uh, by the media in question. I think Star Trek is particularly good at doing this. Star Wars, not so much, although we can end our discussion with what I think the, the moral is, and I'll have a little recommendation for you at the end when we talk about that. Um, but this is how I, I treated the Black Mirror book. If you guys are familiar with Black Mirror, I think that every episode of Black Mirror is presenting some kind of argument. And so there's a chapter for every episode of the Black Mirror book um, wow. where we're trying to identify and examine what the kind of philosophical message, the moral message uh, of the episode is. And so that's the approach that I took with um, uh, with uh, with uh, the sci-fi course, right? Um, yeah, and so that's 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 my probably too long answer to that one too. Hey, that what what would we what else would we expect from a professor, right? So we got to get the the full <laughs> breakdown and now you know really that story sounds just like the starting of the Pod Wars podcast, really. <laughs> really? Our life was building to this. No, definitely not. Um, definitely not as much work went into it, but let's yeah let's pop into like some let's, yeah some let's go to some of the nitty gritty here with some Star Wars. Sure. So. One point you raised in the lecture that I thought was very interesting is that the original trilogy versus the prequels, you have very different kind of portrayal of good and evil. Like the yeah. original trilogy being very much black and white. Like you could tell Darth Vader looks like a Nazi. He's clearly evil. Um, yep. And then the prequel trilogy having a little bit more nuances. Can you kind of explain your points with that and how they differ a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So more strictly speaking, I guess, the Empire looks like Nazis, right? Uh, Darth Vader looks more like a samurai warrior. With his ah, true, stuff, right? true. Right, but but the Empire, the, the, the way that the Empire's dresses up, they very much kind of resemble Nazis. Uh, not to the same degree that, you know, the soldiers and Starship Troopers do, but still pretty damn close. Um, 
And then, and then literally you have like, you know, Luke is in white and Darth Vader is in black, right? Uh, Luke's mm -hmm. theme is in a major key. Darth Vader's theme is in a minor key, mm -hmm. right? Um, Tarkin blows up entire planets just to make a political point. That's pretty obviously evil. <laughs> um, you know, uh, the, the emperor cackles as he, you know, reveals his plans and stuff like that. It's just painted out in, in black and white uh, who the good guys and the bad guys are in the original trilogy. Um, but in the prequels, it's not. And... I maintain that, and, and one of the reasons why is because it's not clear who the good and the bad guys are, uh, mm -hmm. essentially, in, in the in the original trilogy. And I maintain, I know we, we're not going to talk too much about this, but like if you watch them in the appropriate order, I think that this becomes more clear. So if you only watch four and five and you don't go to six first, so you just watch New Hope and Empire, and then you go back and watch one, two, and three. One of the advantages that this has, and this will this will make the, the 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 moral ambiguity of the prequels more clear. You don't really know who the emperor is. You've seen him once in Empire, and that's it, right? So you don't really know who he is, where he came from. You don't know his name. Don't know anything about him. Mm. Secondly, if you really if you really are coming to the story fresh, you don't know who's telling the truth about Luke's parentage. Obi Wan said that you know that Vader killed his father. Mm. Vader says that he is his father. You really don't know who's what, right? And you know his name is supposed to be Anakin. Right. Um, I think you're supposed to, I think you get that from, I think that the, the name is, yeah, yeah. I think the name is mentioned in, in empire or, or new hope. Right. But, but you'll, you'll know that there's talking about that, but you won't really know whether Anakin is Darth Vader or whether or not Darth Vader kills, mm. right. Uh, Anakin, right. Or whatever. And so there's going to be this ambiguity and you don't know who Palpatine is. Yeah. Right. Like, right. Like, I mean, if you, if you've seen empire, you're into the star Wars universe, where if you get to episode one, it's Phantom Menace and that, that in sequence, whenever, right. Like, you know, Ooh, who was killed the master or the apprentice or whatever. And it pans over to Palpatine. Everybody who knows anything about star Wars is like, that's the master, right? Like it's, it's not a mystery, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you were nine years but old. It, like when we saw the prequels, Yes, right. Right. <laughs> no, that, that, right that, that's my point. Right. If you don't know the universe that well, and you hadn't like, you wouldn't know his name or anything like that. You would actually think that Palpatine was a good guy. Right. And that he, um, that he might even be the father figure that Anakin needs. So, so this is something else um, that's uh, uh that uh, I forgot his name again, uh, Dave, Dave Filoni from uh, Mandalorian who worked at Lu Lucasfilm uh, made was that like Qui-Gon, and this also speaks to why it's, it's more ambiguous. Qui-Gon was like the good Jedi. Qui-Gon recognized that the Jedi of the, of the prequels were kind of, were kind of corrupt and decadent, right? That they were too power hungry, that they were too complacent. Um, he recognized that's why he wasn't on the council. That's why he didn't get along with them is because he kind of recognized the problems that were inherent in the, in the, and that's why he wanted to train Anakin because he knew that he could do it right. And that if he left it up to, you know, the council or something like that, it would likely go wrong. And Qui-Gon was the father figure that Anakin needed to not go bad. And of course he dies in the first film. And so he doesn't get to be that father figure. He gets Obi-Wan to do it, but Obi-Wan treats him more like a brother. He's not a father figure. He's not the father figure that he needed. And so you might think that Palpatine is actually the father figure that Anakin needs, right? And so you might actually be hopeful that, you know, that Palpatine will actually be, um, you know, a good influence in that kind of stuff because you don't know that he's actually Darth Sidious, right? If you've, if you've watched them in the appropriate order, you don't know all of that, right? Um, and so when you get to that moment in episode three, like think about, okay, so first of all, okay, let me go back to the judge. So when you get to that episode, that, that moment in episode three, when uh, uh, Mace Windu is confronting um Sidious, right? 
you, you, you maybe then realize uh, uh, what Sidious is, right? Uh, but you also realize that in, in coming to power, he didn't harm anyone directly, right? It was all droids and clothes. And in, and in Star Wars, droids and clothes are soulless, so he's not causing any suffering or anything like that, right? Um, but then you also realize that all things being said, he was duly elected, right? Like the Emperor Palpatine was duly elected. He was, you know, he hasn't done anything illegal to get to where he is. And Mace Windu is going to kill him without a trial, deny him a trial, deny him any kind of, like he's going to defy democracy, defy the courts and everything, and just kind of take justice into his own hands. He's a vigilante essentially at that point, right? Um, and so before he becomes the wrinkled cackled and is, is shouting unlimited power, right? Like before that, there's a there's a kind of case to, and, and also this is obviously before you know what he eventually does, right, uh, in, in the long run. You could see that as like, I can see his position being justified, right? Now, ultimately, he's not going to be justified, right? But in that moment, it's just, it's not clear, right? And so it's just, you know, I mean, symbolically, you can even see it in the the, the ambiguity, even in the music, right? Uh, you guys probably know this, but, you know, the Emperor's theme is is notorious, minor key, you know, da, 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 really ominous or whatever, right? Yeah. Um the celebration, I have, I, I, let's see if you guys know this, the celebration music that happens at the beginning of episode one, right? Mm -hmm. um, as they're triumphantly coming back in, into Naboo, right? That's the emperor's theme. It's just sung by children in, in an upbeat, wonderful, you know, high fluting way or whatever, right? It's mm -hmm. a different song and it has that kind of upbeat. It, it, it's the song of a good guy, right? Um, and so you can see this symbolically in the music. Um, I, I think it's uh, without knowing that um, Palpatine is the emperor or will become the emperor and that he's Darth Sidious the movies are just much more ambiguous. It's really hard to figure out what's going on. And it's really easy to see the Jedi as the bad guys. And they kind of are. I think Luke Skywalker's got a point in The Last Jedi about how they had lost their way. I, I have a I have an assignment for you, Kyle. Go back, okay. watch The Rise of Skywalker when they get to the throne room scene with like the demon Sith, whatever you want to call them. I think those guys are chanting... Um, duel of the Fates. I think they're duel chanting the a slow duel of the Fates. Yeah. Yeah. I, I listened to a little bit of your podcast uh, in prep, and I, I think I heard you say that that theory, and I like it. I like it a lot. Wow, that means a lot to me. That's awesome. Uh, to add on to a little bit of your point, too, I know like among us fellow nerds, there's a huge debate over, did Anakin bring balance to the Force by killing Palpatine, or did he bring balance to the Force by killing basically all the Jedi? Mm. So you can even make off of that argument that it even more propagates that the Jedi are possibly the bad guys. Yes, yes, absolutely, right? Because basically he, he brings balance to the Force in Episode 3 by eliminating all but two, although I guess there's there's more than just two in some of the, the games and if we if we include uh, you know some of the other cartoons and that kind of stuff, right? But you could think of it in terms of, right, we're down to the Emperor and Darth Vader, Obi-Wan and Yoda, and now there's balance, right? Um, and uh, But you could also think of it in terms of what he does at the uh, in 6, he brings balance to the 4th by destroying the Emperor. But of course, he doesn't destroy the Emperor, right? Like, you know, um, in, in the new movies, he doesn't actually do that, right? So um, that, that, that's, that's arguable, right? Um, and I, uh, but I also wonder, I don't know how this will play into the, the balance thing or whatever, but I really like the theory that, um, right, like, uh, uh, Anakin had a virgin birth, right? He was just born without a father. Uh, and the kind of prevailing theory is that what, what happened was that Palpatine um, brought him into existence or maybe Plagueis did, but like you know, somebody 
forced him into existence in order to uh, uh, in order to um, you know for him to be a, his apprentice or whatever, right? I, I, but I think a very interesting theory. If you do the math about how old Baby Yoda is, being fifty years old, right? That he likely would have been born around the same time as Anakin was born, right? Mm-hmm. And so you wonder if a consequence of bringing Anakin into existence was to bring Baby Yoda into existence, mm-hmm. and maybe there's some balance there. I'm not sure what all to make of that, but I really like that kind of general idea. But. Oh yeah, definitely something's going on there. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's dive into a little bit of more of the heavy philosophy here. So you talk a lot about. Um, I always mispronounce this guy's name because I've heard it both ways of Nietzsche or Nietzsche. Um, <laughs> Freddie, yeah. <laughs> um, about how his philosophy really coincided well with the Sith. Would you be able to give our listeners even, like a short bit on kind of Nietzsche's philosophy and how you think that can coincide with the Star Wars universe? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, actually, I have more trouble with his first name, Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, and I... I not very good with name pronouncing, so I'll probably mess that up myself. Um, and I'll add to that that I'm not a Nietzsche scholar. Um, so like I studied up on him and kind of brushed up on him and that kind of stuff for the course. And I taught the course a few years ago or whatever. So I'm not like up, up, up on this, but I can lay out the basics for you. So for Nietzsche, let me get my, let my notes out. So I do this in the right order. Um, so for Nietzsche, there's some major kind of themes. First of all, for Nietzsche, God is dead. And what that means, people misunderstand what Nietzsche means when he says God is dead. God, does, he does not mean that God was alive and then died. Um, and he doesn't even mean by saying that God is God is dead, he doesn't even mean that God doesn't exist. Although Nietzsche was an atheist, he didn't believe in God. But that's not what he meant. When he said God is dead, he was like, he was like somebody in the 70s saying, at the end of the 70s saying that disco is dead. What he, what he means is it's not popular anymore. It's not something that people are relying on. People aren't into it anymore. It is not a cultural force anymore. Um, and he was particularly thinking of in the academic circles that God was dead. God was dead as an idea uh, and specifically as a grounding for morality that traditionally people had found uh, their truth maker for moral truths or their, you know, their, their, their you know, how, to, how to figure out right and wrong, that they would look to God to decide moral questions. And Nietzsche was saying, that's dead. Nobody's doing that anymore. People realize that divine command theory does not work anymore. And I could talk all about why divine command theory is not a good, you know, moral theory and blah, blah, blah. But he was saying that people can't find their answers for moral questions in God anymore. That's what he meant. Um, but this... Like frighten Nietzsche's like, well, if God's not there to give, you know, truth makers to moral truths anymore, does that mean that there are no moral truths? Is is moral nihilism the case, right? And it's debatable about whether or not Nietzsche was a moral nihilist, but it 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 did frighten him. The idea of moral nihilism frightened him because he basically thought that we needed morality in order for society to function. We needed some kind of morality. And so we wanted to provide one, right? Um, but he's and one of the reasons he wanted to provide one is because he thought that the existing one that was put forth by the church, what he called the slave morality, was damaging to humanity. So what, what he meant by the slave morality is this idea in Christian and Jewish thought that being oppressed, being meek and mild, being uh, powerless is somehow 
noble. It is somehow morally praiseworthy that it's good, that it's that it, that it's that it's morally good. Um, and he saw this as a result of like like historically, he said like what happened was the Jews were oppressed; they couldn't overthrow their oppressors, and so they turned being oppressed into a morally good thing. So that they were kind of so instead of trying to overthrow their oppressors uh, because they couldn't, they they turned being oppressed into a morally good thing, and then praised being oppressed and powerless and meek and mild, and saw that as a good thing. And he thought this was a very very bad thing because not only does it enable like people who are abusing their power uh, to to have power over them, so in other words, it's real easy to make people complacent with their you know their bad life, or if you just tell them that suffering is what you should do, suffering is noble, so suffer you know poor servant or whatever, and and uh, um, you know that that will earn you a place in heaven or whatever. But he also saw it as damaging to society because it made those who were powerful and who could better humanity not seek that power. Seeking power and seeking achievement and stuff was seen as a bad thing. And so what Nietzsche wanted to do was lay the ground for a new kind of morality called a master morality that he saw as being championed by like the Romans and the Greeks. Think of like the Roman and Greek heroes, like, uh, you know, like Achilles and, uh, and and these grandiose, like, you know, heroes, or whatever, who were powerful and noble and that they were, they were championed. They were praised for being powerful and noble and to be weak and pitiful was not something that was good. He said, we needed to get rid of the slave morality and embrace this new master morality where we, we champion achievement and power. And that he wanted th- that what that person would do would better society, that they would use their power to better society and make the world uh, a better place um, and order it and that kind of stuff. Want it, order it in a way that was that would, would drive humanity forward. And uh, one of the things that that Nietzsche in this in this in embracing this, one of the things that he decried was democracy. He did not like democracy. One, I think he likely shared Plato's contempt for democracy. Um, this idea, Plato has this idea, the ship analogy that he tells, where he says, like, if you're on a ship and you're trying to get from point A to point B. How do you get there? Do you take a vote of everybody working on the ship and they will decide how to navigate the ship? And, you know, the majority will rule how we point, you know, when we raise the sails and what direction we point the boat. Or do you hire a damn navigator who knows what the hell he's doing, right, (laughs) uh, to make decisions about where to point the ship and how to get, you know, who understands how to read maps, right, and that kind of stuff and, 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 and sailing and all that kind of stuff. And you know, do you, of course, you hire the navigator, right? The, the majority is not qualified to navigate the ship. In the same way, Plato didn't think the majority was qualified to navigate, you know, to, to direct uh, society that you needed experts, you needed philosophers, uh, for, according to Plato, to, to do this kind of thing, right? And I think Nietzsche shared those kinds of worries about democracy. But in addition, he said that democracy took power from the powerful, from those who would achieve, uh, and gave it to the powerless, and he did not like that. He did not, he decried democracy in that way, right? Uh, and so we thought that the kind of driving force behind everyone was their will to power, that their their will to gain and get power, but that uh, under the master morality, that this could be a good thing and that it could further society and make the world a better place. So with all that said, understanding, you know, understanding what Nietzsche is, look at what the emperor says to Anakin, like at the opera house, right? Um, when, you know, he says that, you know, Anakin says the Jedi just, or the the Sith just want power. And, and, and the emperor says, don't the Jedi want that too? That's what everybody wants. They just want more power. Right. Um, 
And but yeah, they use their power for good, Anakin says. And in the Nietzschean way, the Emperor says, ah, good's just a matter of, of perspective. It's it's not right. And this is actually something else that, that Nietzsche said I didn't emphasize a while ago, but that that whether what you think is good is bad is a matter of your upbringing. It's a matter of the way that you were taught and that kind of stuff, right? That and it just depends on how you were taught. If you were brought up in the church, you're gonna have this slave morality where you think being oppressed is good, right? But if you were Greek, you were you would be raised in a society where you thought that being an achiever, not oppressed, but being an achiever was a good thing. Good and wrong, you know, good and bad is all just a matter of perspective, like Nietzsche said, right? Um Notice that the emperor eventually, right? Like he raises the power using democracy, but then he abolishes it, right? Because it's preventing him from having the kind of power um, that, you know, that he thought he needed, right? And if you look at what his intentions apparently could have been, or at least how some people view his intentions, um, he might've actually like, okay. So think about in the Mandalorian, where the client, he doesn't ever get a name, but the imperial climate client that's looking for baby Yoda, right? Um, he has these lines to the Mandalorian where he talks about like, look what happened when the empire fell, right? When the empire went away, what you got was anarchy and chaos, right? You got it. It, it was, you know, you know, bandits and, and, you know, uh, you know, you know, Power vacuums were, were, you know, think about what happened in the in the, the first episode of the second season of Mandalorian, where uh, most whatever it is, that little town or whatever, the Empire is gone. And the next day, like a gang moves in, right, and takes over everything, right? The Empire, the empire offers order. It, it offers stability. It offers, you know, we're going to, we'll provide you with, with infrastructure and with, you know, with jobs and with, right, like it, it's in this kind of way, it's, it's making society better. That's the kind of idea, at least, uh, that's, that's behind all of this, right? Um, and so I lost my train of thought there. So like, that's very, very, very Nietzschean uh, in that way. And if you kind of stop there and don't think about what he eventually became, right? If you think Nietzsche's right, you could kind of see the emperor as a good guy. He's doing what Nietzsche thought the Ubermensch should do. And even if you look at just the basic Sith code, because we're big fans of the Knights of the Old Republic game back in the day. Um, yeah. So like the code here for those who are listening who aren't familiar, peace is a lie. There's only passion. Through passion, I gain strength. Through strength, I gain power. Through power, I gain victory. Through victory, my chains are broken. The force shall free me. So it's not inherently a bad thing. They just think it's all going to be through kind of their constant striving. Right. Mm. right. Absolutely. Right. And if that's not a master morality, I don't know what is. Right. <laughs> um, that is, it is, it is, it's, it's, it's very, very Nietzschean. Absolutely. Strength, power, victory, freedom. All sounds Nietzschean. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't one argue that his, his idea or, difference between slave and um master mentality or morality is a black and white fallacy and where if you like argued like if you put incorporate qui-gon he like tried to uh this gray jedi idea where he's trying to bring in both the good pieces of master and good pieces of slave to be this better person yeah i think that that's actually a decent way to look at it right um that that's one of the reasons that you, you kind of like qui-gon uh and if you look at like um what Ben Kenobi, uh, not Ben Kenobi, I'm sorry, Ben Skywalker, right? Uh, Kylo, right? Eventually kind of becomes, and what eventually even Ray seems to become is this mm -hmm. kind of force user that exists in this middle ground mm -hmm. um, between the, the, the Sith and the Jedi, right? Um, if you, 
well, if you look at the Last Jedi, and you look at the, I think it's the book, some of the the, the books that lead up to the Last Jedi, uh, that kind of talk about the you know trials of Luke before he went to Octo and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of talk, and you see this a little bit in the movie too, about the Force not belonging to the Sith or the Jedi. That uh, there are other you know races and people and, and orders and that kind of stuff that are also aware of the force and they use it in a different way and they can even use it in a more balanced way and that the the sith are wrong for thinking that they can control and own it but so are the jedi and thinking that they can control and own the right way to, to use the force right mm -hmm. and so that there could be this middle ground of just kind of being a force user um but you know, not you know, not having this kind of dichotomous black and white. It's always clear what's good and evil. Life's a lot more complicated. And there's this middle ground. Um, I, I think that's right. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm making sense here, but I think this kind of the general sentiment there, I think, is exactly right. And you can even see the movies as a kind of like where they ultimately end up is that that's the appropriate way um, mm -hmm. to view the force and maybe even view morality, right? Um, as much more gray than black and white. Well, we talked about a little bit of the slave morality a little bit. Um, can you kind of explain how the Jedi... Say if you're proposing the argument that the Jedi are the bad guys of Star Wars and that they're embracing slave morality. How would you break that down? Yeah, no, so they'd be embracing... The, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. They, they embrace the slave morality, right? So, And you can think about their code, right? There is no emotion. There is peace. There is no ignorance. There is knowledge. There is no passion. There is serenity. There is no chaos. There is harmony. There is no death. There is the force. This is 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 very. I mean, think about the fact that you know that they can't marry, right? They can have no relationships, completely detached. Um, they're supposed to be in service to everyone, right? Um, this is definitely a, a, a slave morality, uh, except for the fact that, like, you know, they take laser swords to political negotiations and that kind of stuff. That's not very right. Um, but uh, like, it's they are, but you can almost think of them more like the church, right? So like one of the things that Nietzsche would have a problem with is how the church imposed the slave morality on everyone else, right? But they used it to gain power for themselves, right? And so I guess one of the worries about the Jedi was it would be that they're doing something very, very similar where they are, right? Like they, you know, well, that's maybe the, the, the laser swords are a good example, right? They preach this kind of you know, this, this kind of pacifism and this kind of peacefulness and they're peacemakers and we want to, we want to be peaceful, et cetera, et cetera. And then they bring the laser sword to the political <laughs> negotiation, negotiation, right? Like they're, they're, they're not quite, you know, practicing what they preach. Right. And that hypocrisy is definitely, you know, one of the signature cards of, um, of the bad guys. Right. Um, but, you know, yeah, that said, I mean, the emperor doesn't follow through in a completely Nietzschean way either um, that, you know, he ultimately does make it just about his own power um, and lording his own power over evil. I think where he really completely, like where he obviously breaks with Nietzsche is whenever, you know, unlimited power, right? Whenever he's, he's doing his big thing to, you know, to, to, kill, uh, to kill Mace Windu or whatever, that it's all about the power for him. Whereas Nietzsche argued that people do what they do because of a will to power. Nietzsche thought that the appropriate way to use it was to better oneself and to better the world. And I don't think like, even though I think the emperor might fool himself into thinking that he's bringing, you know, safety and security to the empire and that kind of stuff. Right. Um, he, he's not, he's not really bettering humanity that the, the kinds of absolute kind of uh, uh, 
violations of freedom and that kind of stuff are not for everyone's betterment. Um, a better example of what Nietzsche would have called the Ubermensch, the, the person who has the power and uses it to better, uh, better society, would be somebody like Bill Gates or Elon Musk. Right, who who uses has all this power, this money, this prestige, or whatever, but they use it to like you know vaccinate the world against diseases, or you know to, to get us into outer space and, and exploration and knowledge and that kind of stuff. That those would be better, more better better examples of uh, of the Ubermunch. And the emperor is not that. The emperor is not Bill Gates or Elon Musk, um, right? Um, but um, yeah, hopefully that hopefully that was a good answer to your question there. Yeah, yeah. Well kind of off of that idea i mean lucas is very much into both the uh, philosophy the fantasy and the religious elements in his work um and we both all three of us come from kind of the judeo-christian background and we know that a lot of those who are more critics of nietzsche kind of think that with the inherent sinful nature of man that the ubermensch isn't necessarily possible like if somebody strives for power the sinful nature is going to come up and they're inherently going to become like this palpatine type do you think that lucas is kind of arguing a similar point or do you think that it's like no palpatine's abandoning the sith code yeah, I think that that I'm not sure how much um, what's the word I'm looking for. I'm not sure how much philosophical credit I want to give Lucas, right? Um, like, how much is he really like trying to do philosophy? Come on, don't be one of those Star Wars fans hating on Lucas. Come on, that's the maker. I mean, we know that his wife is basically what edited the movies to make it palatable. So, right. Well, yeah, and, but but I mean that said, I think that, and this is something else that I talk about in the in the course too, is that I don't I don't ascribe too much to intentionalism. This idea that the creators of pieces of art get to dictate what they're the meaning of that those pieces mm. of art you know are right. Yeah, it takes and so out. yeah, I think so. So I think that. So I'll answer your question. But I think that a, a completely reasonable interpretation of the movies is exactly what you said that like in principle Nietzscheism might look good it might even look like uh, um, uh, the emperor is trying to do something good he might even have noble intentions uh, um, uh, initially or whatever but you know power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely and that we see that right whenever he finally you know when Anakin turns on Mace Windu and cuts off his arm and he does the unlimited power thing that's when the power begins to corrupt right mm. and so he may have been noble and his intentions up until that point and then it you know and then it turns and i think that that's a, a completely and lucas may have intended at, intended it as a condemnation of uh nietzsche's philosophy um and i think that that is a legitimate critique that you worry about whether or not like as as wonderful as it, as it may seem the absolute power in that kind of way may absolutely corrupt and so you just can't get there the ubermensch is just not possible um i i think that's a good interpretation yeah, I really like how you keep bringing up the the Mace Windu and Palpatine scene because I think that's something we've talked about before, and we're like, we don't, we're not really sure if we get why Anakin like made such a drastic choice. Like he just kind of went from zero to a hundred. But when you kind of lay out both sides, like, well, the Mace Windu is being super hypocritical, and Palpatine is just being himself. <laughs> like it, it really lays it out and makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and add to that, and this is something that I think makes the watching order. So my watching order is four, five, one, two, three, six. I think it's, this makes this watching order so much better because, or it makes the movie so much better to watch them in this order. And this is, this is one of the reasons why. So again, like realize that not only is Mace being hypocritical, he's like, I'm not even going to give him his day in court. He's been elected. He's been duly elected, but I'm going to just kill him in cold blood anyway. Uh, so he's completely being a vigilante. Um, but keep in mind that the emperor has completely bamboozled 
uh, uh, Anakin, right, into thinking that he has the power to save Padme, that he has the power to 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 resurrect, right, to, to, to resurrect her essentially if she dies, right? He has power over life and death, right? Um, and so he's really taken by that. He's really taken by you know by by that line, right? And how how wonderful it is that like I mean clearly he gave him the impression that the dark side already has this power, right? And then after he converts and is already in or whatever, there's that line where he says like I'm sure we can figure it out together, right? right? Yeah. Like and, and you, you gotta see you, you see Anakin going, wait a minute, you you clearly were indicating that you already knew how to do this, and now we gotta figure it out, yeah. right? Um, but and and this also this gets back to, to, to Justice's point a while ago. I, this is something I think that that people don't recognize in Episode Nine, and it makes Episode Nine a bit underrated. But how awesome is it that what Episode Nine does is make clear, like it brings it back around to that power over life and death power that was promised to Anakin that like that he thought that you know the Sith had or whatever that they don't and the Jedi don't really have it either. All they can do is kind of come back as force ghosts, but they don't have real power over life and death. But who does? Like the ultimately like the last action that we see done in the force in the movies, right? Is is Ben Skywalker bringing Ray back to life. Right. The thing that was promised all along the Sith or the Jedi or whatever could do. And it turns out, and again, he's not a Jedi, but he's also not a Sith, that that power just lies in the force. It's not something that belongs to any one group or whatever. It's in this middle gray area. Right. Mm. Um, and that we don't even like like that. They don't say it. The, the, the movie doesn't outright say it doesn't preach. This is like, hey, you know, that power we were talking about way back there where we're going to use this power or whatever. It's it's understated. But that's exactly what happens. They learn to use that power that Anakin was promised so long ago. I, I just think I just think that bit of it is beautiful. Oh, yeah, um, that's awesome. I never thought about that. That's yeah. actually really sweet. I know. Giving me the chills over here. And you guys hated on Ben bringing her back to life. <laughs> Come on. I, I never once hated on that. <laughs> that's a lie. <laughs> yeah, that's the only thing I hated on that scene was when they kissed. I was like, oh, they kiss. He dies. I'm fine with it. <laughs> well, when he dies after the kiss, you're like, you deserve that now for that cheesy <laughs> moment. <laughs> you deserve death. <laughs> All right. Well, we also would like to just spitfire a few general moral questions from Star Wars here. So okay. let's let's go over a few that we we're kind of thinking of over the week. So we're we're being kind of Jedi haters today. But one question we have. If the Jedi are peacemakers, is it moral for them to help in the Clone Wars, not only to like just be a helpful part of it, but basically to be leaders? And is but is complacency a better action? So like you have the Jedi in the prequels who are just diving into the war, and then you have Jedi like Yoda in the original trilogy, who everyone's dying and he's not doing a damn thing. Like are right. which one is truly the Jedi philosophy? Yeah. Oh well, that's a different question. Which one's truly the Jedi philosophy? <laughs> yeah, true. If it's morally right what's, or what's morally right or wrong, right? So, <laughs> yeah, right. So, I mean, if we look at if we look at the code, right? There is no emotion. There is peace. There is no ignorance. There is knowledge. Passion. Serenity. No chaos. Harmony. No death. There is the force. You would think that they, the, the ones who are are embodying the code better, would be Yoda and Obi-Wan later, right? Like um, those who are more kind of standoffish and, and um, like, I, I, you know, I think that, well, uh, yeah, here's a great example. And this is why I love this so much. Um, 
people crap on the last Jedi too. And I, and I, I really like it. <laughs> and one of, I think perhaps one of the best embodiments of the Jedi code that I just read is Luke and how Luke solves the problem uh, uh, in the last Jedi, right? That he doesn't even rely on violence. He's not even there for that final fight, right? Mm -hmm. He projects himself and he, he sacrifices himself to do so, but he projects himself over um, to, you know, to Kylo or whatever to basically distract him while everybody else is escaping, right? Mm -hmm. There is no violence. There's not even a possibility of violence there, right? Um, he doesn't even let him, like he can't block anything because he's not actually there. So he doesn't even let him touch him or whatever. He's just dodging and it's all defense, right? I think that that, is so much an embodiment of uh, the Jedi code so much better than the Jedi literally rushing off uh, to war like they do in the prequels, not to mention the fact that they're fighting Palpatine's war for him, right? Uh, and don't realize that. Now, what is morally better, right? That's That itself is, 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 is another question. Um, and it's essentially a question about whether or not pacifism is morally superior to just war theory, right? This idea that is it ever justified uh, to fight in the name of good or should you always not fight? Should you always be a pacifist? And my personal take on that is, uh, is, is no, that pacifism is not always right. There can be times when it is morally justified uh, to fight literally violently on the side of on the side of good. I think World War II is a perfect example of this. Um, my grandfather fought in World War II. I'm very proud of the service uh, you know, that he did. And I think that they were really doing a really good thing. And that pacifism would have, while it can be noble in intentions, and there certainly can be times for it, and certainly times when it is justified, pacifism would have only helped Hitler and the Nazis. Pacifism would not have prevented them from doing what they did. And, and had everybody been a pacifist, right, we'd be living in the Third Reich right now, and there would be nobody but the Aryan race at this point, right? Most of us would not even be here had that, had that happened, right? Um, and so I don't think it's morally wrong for the Jedi as if they're supposed to be peacemakers, uh, cops are supposed to be policemakers, but that doesn't mean that violence is never justified. Now, I'm not saying that cops can't be way too violent. I think they very, very often are. That's a whole other thing. Um, but to be a peacemaker, sometimes violence is required, right? Um, and so I don't think it's just morally wrong for the Jedi to engage in violence, to engage in war as peacemakers. Like kind of by, like, by definition, it's like they can't do that. I think they could. Um, that's not to say that people don't rush off to war way too quickly and way too often. I think that they do. Uh, but the idea that it's never justified, to me, it, it seems to go too far. And I talk about that. I use um, Doctor Who and Starship Troopers to talk about pacifism and just war theory um, in the sci-fi course. I think that's lecture 15, I think, something like that. But. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think you have a, a good point there that <laughs> what the Jedi aspire to be and what's morally right are very different things. Um, yeah, Because yeah. they aspire to be, I think, the reclusive monks hiding off, thinking wise thoughts, you know, <laughs> and then they're basically what they should be doing is kind of a mix. Like I always think of the prequels yeah. of the Clone Wars is kind of like, if you're going to give a historical example, say the Catholic Church with the Crusades would be the closest thing I can have come into mind of that doing it for the sake of a religious element, but a bit ambiguous on the morality. Um, yeah. So next one to Spitfire at Shia. Um, I don't know if we put this on the notes, but I know you discussed it in the lecture. So Luke Skywalker going down the trench. You have the Death Star destroying planets here, but it's also a station filled with tons of government workers, both combatant and non-combatant. 
is it moral for him to destroy Death Star, ending those <laughs> lives, or to let those lives be around and have a planet-killing thingy floating through space? <laughs> yeah, right. So, so good. So you can you can attack this on many different levels. Um, you can attack it on a utilitarian ground that although he's killing a lot of people by destroying the Death Star, he is saving more people overall, right? By preventing this planet-killing weapon from being out there. And so you can just say, greatest good for greatest number. Uh, it, it's the appropriate thing uh, to do to destroy it, right? Um, it's also, though, an act of self-defense, right? The, the It is like not personal self-defense, but like all his friends and all everybody like the, the, you know, the rebel Alliance or whatever is on Yavin and they're about to be blown up by the death star. Right. So it's kind of like, you know, kill or be killed here. Right. A lot of people are going to die either way. And so he's acting in self-defense. And so I think that if you think that self-defense is justified, um, then you can certainly view it um, as, as being justified. Right. And in general, you just might think that the rebel Alliance is just defending itself in general, because eventually they're going to, you know, they're going to catch up with them. Right. Um, so, uh, if I, I think that, especially for the first Death Star, it's it's a little bit more clear that it's justified because I think that it's going to be it's going to a harder case is going to be have to be made that there's not that there's non Imperials on the first Death Star because the thing is complete. So I think you're going to you could you could argue that the only people that are on there are, are going to be Imperials. It's the second Death Star that gets more complicated because it's still under construction, and so you could consider that there's probably a lot of like you know like you know you know non-government contractors or whatever on there putting the thing together. Right? There's a lot of innocents and you know civilians and that kind of stuff on there, um, and so that becomes a lot more you know morally ambiguous. Um, and it's not a, a direct act of self-defense. Right, they're not about to blow up another planet. They're not about to blow up the Rebel Alliance or whatever. Um, and uh, uh, and so it's it's that's a little bit more morally ambiguous. Now, if you see the Empire is you know intrinsically evil, yeah, it can be um, it can be justified. But um, also notice that there, there's there's if there are civilians on there, there's collateral damage, right? Um, that you had, but that's very common in war for there to be collateral damage. You know, there was, there was like in world war two, both sides bombed a lot of cities and killed a lot of civilians uh, in those bombings. And it was seen, it was seen as justified because it was, it was just part of this part of war. That's what happens in war. Um, but it's, that's a lot more sticky um, of, of a situation. Right. So again, I, I could go on and on about <laughs> just war theory, but um, I think it's, I think it's lecture 16 in, 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 in the sci-fi course. So mm. check that out. Sweet. Well, okay. So last one before we go into the final little question here. So we touched on it a little bit, but do you think that overall the Sith philosophy is inherently evil or just a maybe countercultural philosophy? Yeah, I don't... I think that what we talked about before, I think, is about right, right? That that it, it's in principle is probably fine because it's much more. It's 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 basically Nietzsche's philosophy, uh, and in Nietzsche's philosophy, like in theory, it works, right? Like uh, it would be great if you had these powerful people who were able to achieve and and better society and that kind of stuff. That would be great. So in theory, uh, it, it it it's it's great. It's just that in practice, it seems to either attract people who are, you know, are corrupt or once people get into it, the power corrupts them um, and they end up doing bad. And so maybe the Sith philosophy is not inherently bad. It just kind of ends up corrupting or, uh, you know, attracting bad people. I'm, I'm kind of inclined to, to say that because when you look at the code, right, it's not, you know, 
It's not, it's about freedom. It's about power and knowledge. It's, you know, anyway. Okay. So a question that wasn't on, on your list there, but something that I discovered uh, doing a tiny bit of research on Nietzsche is this guy is way back 120 years ago is when he died. And his, his philosophy um, is very much like, it basically is what I see in, uh, in culture today, American postmodernism. Um, I don't know. I just think it was uh, kind of insane because I'm sure what he was saying back then was not very popular, but now it seems like it is kind of bettering yourself, the more existential, um, let's do good to each other. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I don't want to open up a huge like can of worms, but what's your, your thought? I see you thinking over there. <laughs> I might've just started something. <laughs> yeah. On, so wait, are, so are you asking if mainly like, the Nietzsche philosophy was just super controversial then, but wouldn't be today, basically? That's basically what I'm trying to argue. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not sure, because whether or not... Postmodern brings to mind, like, moral nihilism and uh, uh, kind of relativism about facts and that kind of stuff, right? Uh, and there's certainly a lot of that, like a post-truth world and, you know, that kind of stuff, right? Um, that part of him might be... Uh, might be popular, but it's also some people would argue that he's not that way, that he's not a nihilist, that he's not a relativist, and Nietzsche's really, really hard to interpret. Um, <laughs> and so um, uh, I'm not sure how popular it would be today, certainly to the extent that you've got political leaders who want to be strong men um, and right, like, and decry democracy and, and uh, you know, ignore the popular vote or rig elections and. Um, <laughs> And that kind of stuff, I'm thinking in terms of like Putin, Putin does this, right? Mm -hmm. um, where they hold free elections and then, you know, 90% vote for him and whatever, that, that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, that those kind of people would, 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 would seem to champion Nietzsche's philosophy, right? But again, it's not clear that they're actually applying it correctly, yeah. um, right? Um, and so I could see people finding elements of it popular today. Maybe that's the way to answer your question here. Um, and, but I'm not sure that uh, everyone would, would find it. And it's certainly, you know, there's a, there's a big push to like democracy, mm. right? Especially in America or whatever. And since Nietzsche decried democracy, that probably wouldn't be, um, that probably wouldn't be too popular. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, I'm not a Nietzsche scholar. So, yeah. you know, there's probably a, a whole bunch more to say about that. But Well, yeah, well, me neither is why I'm asking you. So no, that definitely helps me out. It was, I, I just saw a little tinge. I'm like, huh, this is, it's kind of crazy. I didn't realize. I mean, it just kind of blew my mind how old school this guy really was, and um, it's it's hanging in there, you know, and and even today. So I mean, I didn't even know yep. he was the the God is dead guy. I mean, that's that's. I mean, oh, yeah. seems like a pretty big deal. So I mean, it's been awesome to learn from you, and I know we still got a great question ahead. But yeah, this is just awesome learning having one on one meeting in the office with you know the professor. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I, I do have one question and this is like way left field <laughs> nothing really with philosophy um but we we just recorded an episode on um lord of the rings and how it can be used as a form of escapism so i'm wondering when you do you ever have a time where you find it hard to view these works and like escape instead of just like focusing on the philosophy what's going into it or are you just so like because that's your job, like you're so focused on Or just that. like, damn, those lightsabers are dope. <laughs> just, <laughs> I, I, I usually, like, it is kind of automatic. If something, 
I can certainly sit back and enjoy a Star Wars movie or a Mandalorian episode or whatever first time and just kind of sit back and enjoy um, the wonder of it. For example, in the first episode of the second season of Mandalorian, when when Mando comes flying out of the Krat Dragon <laughs> and then just turns around and hits the detonate, like that was just oh, that so was just like, <laughs> there was there's no philosophy there. There's no deeper meaning. That was just that was just taking me back to role playing days, and that was just that was just awesome. Uh, that. That first episode just—I mean, they—they they had fighting Gamorians, right? That was my character. Um, we had a Jawa that was in our our troop. Uh, we definitely stole armor. We had we had stolen Boba Fett's armor, and 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 when I killed Darth Vader, we stole Darth Vader's armor. So there was stolen armor in that episode. There was just like all the stuff that you know, role playing that made role playing great was all in that episode. It was just awesome. So I sat back and enjoyed that and liked it. So I definitely can do that. But when like even on a first viewing when something big philosophical happens or whatever, I can't help but go, Ooh, I could work that into class. Ooh, I could, I could write a, I could write a psychology today. Uh, I've got a blog for psychology today called uh, pop, uh, Plato on pop. I could write an article on that. Right. Um, when, you know, like in solo, whenever, um, uh, um, Oh, dang it. The, 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 the droid, uh, the droids name, uh, uh, L3. Yeah. Yeah. L3. Right. When L3, you know, uh, is freeze the droids right uh, uh, at, at the at the at the spice mine right you know um, and they you know the barbaric uh, restraining you know restraining bolt and you know, you know find something to do go free your you know your 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 brothers and sisters or whatever and it's re revolt and freedom all that kind of stuff I was like oh this I I can't help um, you know but but see the philosophical implications here and start writing an article and that kind of stuff <laughs> in my head but. The thing is, is I enjoy that so much it doesn't ruin it for me. Mm -hmm. um, like that, that enhances the, the the enjoyment of uh, um, of it for me, and so it doesn't like distract or you know, right? So I think I can do both at once. I can you know celebrate the awesomeness or whatever of it, and uh, but then you know also you know revel in the revel in the philosophy. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah, I think <laughs> hearing you describe watching Star Wars a little bit, have you seen the new Clone, the Clone Wars at all or the new season at all yet? Not the new season, no. Um, I've watched a good chunk, but not all of the Clone Wars cartoon that Lucas did um, uh, back a ways. But I have not watched Star Wars Rebels yet. I kind of plan on doing that with my seven-year-old once he's ready to do that. Mm -hmm. Um and uh, I haven't watched, I hadn't finished, I got, with Clone Wars, I got most of the way through it, and then there was an episode that was just R2 and C-3PO. <laughs> I think I know what one you're talking about. It was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore, I'll go back to it later, and I just never got back to it. So. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it goes between super heavy themes and awesome stuff, and then you have an episode where it's like Mace Windu with Jar Jar and Jar Jar's girlfriend, and you're like, why yeah. the hell am I watching this? <laughs> But like the newest season has deep themes in there because you mentioned how um, I believe you mentioned on how Lucas kind of has the faceless, nameless clones, and then Clone Wars they have deep personalities, and you get yeah. into Order sixty six, and it just adds a whole new realm to it all. But that's a whole different tangent. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. The last thing we'd like to talk about a little bit though is so kind of with the whole Skywalker saga. You have a lot going on, a lot of different messages, but do you feel like and what would you feel like is the main moral of the story or morality statement that Lucas is, or at least the Star Wars is trying to present to us? Okay, so this is where I'm going to make my suggestion. If you really, really, really want to talk about this, um, you, need to, you need to contact a guy named Jason Eberl. 
Um, he is, uh, I'll give you, I'll, I'll email, I'll give you his email and stuff. Sweet. Um, awesome. he, I'll give you a little, I'll give you a little bit on this, but I'll, let me tell you about what he does. And, and okay. So he does a lot of pop culture and philosophy stuff too. Um, so another project that I'm involved in, I am the editor for the Palgrave uh, philosophy uh, or a pop culture as philosophy handbook. Um, it is this years long project I've been working on. I've been working on it for a few years. I'll be working on it a few more. Um, it will ultimately be probably over a hundred chapters. Um, there are, um, it's, and I'm editing, I'm not writing it. I'm editing it. So a whole bunch of different, I've read a couple chapters in it, but you know, a whole bunch of different authors all contributing to this thing. Um, there'll be, there's five major, uh, there's five themes in it. There, there's, a, there's a section on film, there's a section on television, there's a section on comedians, a section on graphic novels, a section on video games. Um, and the idea of this is to treat these things as philosophy, not, you know, not and philosophy, but as philosophy. What are the philosophical messages that are, are being raised, uh, you know, by these things? Um, and I'm, I'm, we've got about, I think, 30 chapters written now. There's a whole bunch more in the works. I've got a few more to commission and that kind of stuff. It will be a few years before it's done. Uh, but it's this big, giant project. Um, the Star Wars chapter is written by Jason Ibrill. He, he does the Star Wars chapter. He is also the editor of, do I have that book on me? I don't think I have it here. He is the editor of the Star Wars and Philosophy book as well. Mm. And in his chapter, he tries to do this. He tries to identify what uh, the moral is. All right. So, um, I, I want to. I want to. I want to tell a little story. Then I'll get you. I'll, I'll tell you what I think the moral, what he says the moral is, and kind of why I think he's right about it. Um, so think about um, the big ultimate moments in three, six, and nine, and what happens. So, what what Anakin's trying to do. And when he turns, is save Padme. He's trying to save the, the one he loves, right? Um, but he does so uh, having been fooled, right? Um, and he ends up aligning with evil, right? Uh, uh, you know, ultimately what Luke's would see as evil, right? But he ends up aligning with evil to do so. He's, but he's got good intentions or whatever. But it, it doesn't it doesn't pan out, right? Um, but he's trying to save he's trying to save what he loves. Episode six. Which, by the way, this is why you watch, you, you, if you watch, if you do my watching order, four, five, one, two, three, six, right? The reason that it, that's a really good watching order, one of the reasons it's a really good watching order is because by the time that you get to there, like if you just watch four, five, and six, when, when the penultimate moment's coming and you're hoping that Darth Vader saves Luke, you're only hoping so because you root for Luke. You like Luke. You've, you've, you've got to know him in four and five. You want you don't want Luke to die, right? But you've really only seen Darth Vader as a bad guy, right? So you really don't care that much uh, about, 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 you know, Darth Vader or whatever, right? You only see him as a bad guy. But if you watch four or five and you go back and watch one, two, and three, and you see how the Emperor Palpatine, Sheev, right? How he screwed over Anakin and lied to him and, and tricked him and got him to do what he did, right? And then you come to that moment in six, you not only now know Anakin's backstory and you see how he got messed over and you saw him as a little boy and you saw what happened to him. When that moment comes, you not only care about Luke, but you care about Anakin too. You want Anakin back. You, you want him to come back. And so as that awesome scene, we are, we, whenever he's when he looks at the, he looks at Luke and he looks at the emperor and he's looking back and forth and he's trying to decide what to do. Right. You're literally saying, you know, Anakin come back and it works. Right. He saves the day. 
saving what he loves, his son, right? And he becomes um, he becomes a father figure that he should have had to Luke, right? Saving what he loves. End of nine, same thing, right? That Ray is saving who she loves, but then Ben is also saving what he loves, and and there's so much of that all over. And so, what what you could ironically, <laughs> what you you can actually see the, the moral the moral of the saga is stated once, stated out loud, I think one time. Um, but it's very appropriate. It's stated by the character. It's stated by given uh, the the kind of uh, uh, the kind of character that the 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 the, the subsequent the seven, eight, and nine had because there was so much more minority representation and that kind of stuff in in the new movies. It's said by Rose Tico that we're not going to win this by killing what we hate by saving we'll what, we saving what we love, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That is a hot take saying that Rose had the <laughs> penultimate statement of the Skywalker saga. Yeah. Right, right. It's the moral. That's the moral, right? That She's the one who says the moral, right? And I think that that is appropriate in a number of ways, right? But but that's good stuff. But that I think that is the moral. That's not the entire point or anything like that. But yeah. I think that's the moral, and that's the that's the case that, that Jason makes uh, in his in, in in much more in a much better way than I did, and in a much more kind of nuanced way than I did. He knows the philosophy around this kind of stuff a whole lot better, um, and uh, arguably knows the the, the Star Wars. I, I would love to, I would love to go head to head with Jason and Star and Star Wars trivia. I'm not sure who would win, um, but. He, he knows that he knows the universe really well, but that, that's if you guys are interested in talking more about that, um, he wrote the article for the Pelgrave series. And yeah, anyway, that's awesome. No, but I do, I do like that idea as the moral of the story. I mean, you hear a lot of people talk about how Star Wars is about redemption, um, but I, I think with the sequel trilogy, you get a little bit of a difficulty with that. But just the idea of you're saving what you love, I think that really propagates throughout all the movies. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's the way you defeat evil is not by killing it, but by saving what you love. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It was awesome just talking a little bit of Star Wars, some morality, some philosophy. I think our listeners learned a lot from this. Mm-hmm. I cool. Absolutely. Th- thanks for having me on. If you ever want to talk about, um, I know you guys do Marvel too. Um, if you ever, if you want to talk about time travel, it's something else that I do um, with the. Uh, I have an article I could show you on uh, Marvel, the last Marvel movie, the big one, the big penultimate one, uh, whatever, and how the time travel and that kind of stuff works. That's of interest to you. Ooh, you have to email Ooh, that, that sounds, our way. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, where can some of our listeners find more of your work and learn a little bit more about you? Yeah, so uh, you can find the sci-fi course on The Great Courses. Um, you can access that a, a number of different ways. You can just buy it from The Great Courses as a video lecture series, uh, or you could buy the CDs or whatever, or an audio download and just listen to the audio. Um, if you, uh, you could also do The Great Courses Plus app, which is something you can do on your smartphone, your smart device, or your uh, your uh, computer. Um, it's basically their subscription service, and you can you can get a free month. You can actually watch it for free. You get a free month and watch my course, and then unenroll if you wanted to. But nice. like Great Courses Plus, it's on there, and you can listen to it. You can see it on video or just listen to it on audio. Um, all of my courses for Great Courses are on there, and also available from Audible on uh, uh, the, uh, as as audiobooks. Um, I, I will say this. Uh, if you, especially for sci-fi, if you just do the audio part, uh, you're missing out. 
um, because there's awesome visuals that come with this course. Um, not only just like kind of explanatory pictures and that kind of stuff, um, but you guys can see, they can't see it on the podcast, but you see all the stuff behind me. I did something like that for the sci-fi course where behind me is all this nerdy memorabilia and we switch out different things and um, in, in, you know, for different lectures and that kind of stuff. And uh, I even like, uh, I do a lecture on, um, on do we live in a multiverse? Is there an evil clone of me or whatever, you know, like in some other multiverse or whatever. And we actually, we actually went through the trouble of doing that particular episode last and in all the other lectures i have a full beard and in that one i just have the goatee we did this like a spock like evil and like the set is different and everything is different like you'll miss (laughs) and i don't even mention i just i just do the lecture like normal whatever you're just supposed to recognize that you're looking at an alternate version of me from an alternate universe you know doing the lectures there's all kinds of little jokes and and fun things (laughs) that's awesome so meta (laughs) (laughs) but uh, you like my great courses stuff you can find on the great courses app, greatcourses.com, uh, or as audiobooks on Audible. Um, any of my other stuff you can find, like my books and stuff you can find on uh, on Amazon. Black Mirror and Philosophy is on Amazon now. Should be an audiobook soon. It's supposed to be out before Thanksgiving, the audiobook for that. Um, one of the little, if you're a big Black Mirror fan, you probably like Bandersnatch, the Choose Your Own Adventure episode <laughs> in Black Mirror and Philosophy. For that episode, we have a Choose Your Own Adventure chapter uh, where you can like... You can do different philosophical questions. That's lots of fun. Um, Inception and Philosophy is another book you can find of mine on Amazon, that kind of stuff. I have uh, two blogs for Psychology Today. You can find me on there. Any of my academic work, if you want that, you can go to academia.edu, David Kyle Johnson. Um, and most of the stuff that I publish, like academically in journals and that kind of stuff, including most of my pop culture articles, are there available to download for free. Um, so you can you can find my work there. Um, but yeah, hopefully that answer. That was clear enough anyway. Yeah, awesome. And like usual, guys, you can get with us, in touch with us at Podwars Podcast on Twitter or send us an email at askpodwarspodcast at gmail.com. And everyone, have a great week.